Hi, it's Ben here, and you're about to listen to Episode 3 of Pastor Jock and Helen Duncan's Story of Their Life with God. And there's more healings and more adventure and more church history in this episode. If you haven't listened to Part 1 and 2, then hit the pause button right now and go back and find these. Okay, time to sit back, grab a cuppa, and enjoy this great conversation. And with just another particular thing I remember just after we came to the, into the Vogue Theatre. I was always terribly shy, actually, and even giving my test money, I was quite shy. Most, and most people wouldn't describe you that way now, would they? No, they wouldn't. I made a glorious discovery that first meeting in the Vogue. I found the ticket office. You could walk into the ticket office. You could actually climb over at the back of the ticket office, you could duck underneath the stairs. You could get into the vacuum cleaner cupboard, climb over the vacuum cleaners and come up the stairs out of the ladies' toilet. And what would happen is you would come in behind the house leaders who lined the top of the stairs into the Vogue, who would ask them, would they mind giving their testimony? Well, I was so terrified of giving my testimony. I made the glorious discovery of of the vacuum cleaner cupboard and every meeting for for all the years then until we went to New Zealand, I would go in that way. So you'd go in there to hide? I'd go in there. So that someone didn't ask you to give your testimony? That's right. How old were you at this stage? Um, <laughs> <laughs> a mother of teenage children. Really? Wow. Actually, I was, uh, let me think, 38. By the time we went to New Zealand, and uh, I remember the first meeting we had in New Zealand was in a motel room. There were four of us. And I looked around and I said, Helen, you cannot hide any longer. And, and was that the change? That was the change. And I operated the gift of tongues at that meeting for the first time. And I never looked back as far as shy, being shy, hiding from giving my testimony. In fact, as you all know now... You can't keep me quiet. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a dramatic change. And by the time I, I had come back, when we came back after our 15 years in New Zealand, we came back, what, year 98, was it? Yep. No worries. I could talk to a 1,000 people. Not a problem. Praise the Lord. He delivered me from that fear. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. It was. I mean, uh, and did you recognise this change, you know, Pastor Joe? Yes, but I don't think I ever wanted to bring any pressure on her because I knew that she... Um, she might have already related that story. When, when she first came to Adelaide in 1963 and she was only 17, we only had a little assembly of about 30 people up at Elizabeth and at one of the first meetings she came to, her brother-in-law, Pastor John Coleman, asked her to give a testimony. And then the next Sunday when I picked her up from the nursing home behind the Lyle McEwen Hospital, studying, training to be a nurse, she was in... In tear, she was tearful and said, before we go to the meeting, we've got to go around to Pastor John's place and I've got to talk to him about never asking to give give it again. Wow. So, so, and how old were you at that, at that age? 17. I was 17 then, yes, yes, yes. So between 17 when you first gave yeah. your testimony to 38. 38. Not giving you testimony? Like on, on occasions, yes, on occasion. I had. Yes, I had. When I was put in a corner, yeah. I would, but I wouldn't volunteer. Yeah. Yes, Did anyone they... ever find you hiding in the vacuum cleaner closet? 
<laughs> I don't believe they did. <laughs> and then the problem came in, how are we going to get it to stop? <laughs> no, that was never a problem. And I think I, there's a scripture that says, for I cannot but yeah. speak of the things I've seen and heard. That's right. And here you are telling your testimony and this will be heard by... <laughs> Thousands of people. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. So so in all of this, you just give the Lord the glory. 100%. Because when you've got the gospel and the truth to talk about, there's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, I've been reading uh, about David uh, this this week. And yes. You know, here's a young man with really no skill. Yes. No natural skill to go and f- Good at to, killing to lions fight, and right? bears. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but even with that, you know, he didn't see that as his natural skill. He saw that as no. the Lord delivered right. him. Um, and That's the Lord right. delivered him. That's, That's right. right. He said that. Mm. That's right. And, uh, and he'd, you know, he'd not, it's not like he'd not been around the army. You know, he was, mm. he was Saul's armour bearer, I think, beforehand. Yes. Um, yes. And, uh, and so he knew what, what it was all about. Yes. He knew would have known what a mighty man of war would have been and a great warrior would have been. Mm. Let's talk about New Zealand. So you moved mm. over to New Zealand. When did you do that? We did that in 1983. Uh, what had happened is um, I think both of us are tarred with the same brush. We both got gypsy blood. So we've never really settled anywhere all that well. But we had been in Adelaide at that point 16 years when we had our last venture yeah. over to Hobart and Kangaroo Island but before that. but So there in the Adelaide Assembly had just gone ballistic over that last few years of the 70s and early 80s. So you moved to – you did – Tasmania and Kangaroo Island before New Zealand? Yes. Right, okay. Yes. Kangaroo Island in 1965, just after we got married, and then a couple of years later in 67, we had a crack at Hobart. You've got some really interesting stories, if I remember, um, from from your time in Hobart. Yes. We did. Mm. Yes. So do you want me to go there? 100%. Yeah, let's do that first. Well, what happened was that um, uh, we wanted – Jack Clay, Pastor Jack Clay, who was a true evangelist and maybe like all evangelists, tended to exaggerate the numbers and he had gone into Hobart and had a meeting with a couple called George and Joyce Silverizen and um, and had about 40 people and he came back to Geelong where he lived and said, look, somebody should go down there. Uh, We've got 40 people down there waiting for a pastor. And we just caught us after coming back from Kangaroo Island in 65, 66, thought about going to Darwin. When the work in Darwin first started, I praise God that never worked out. Not a great one for Darwin weather. But um, <laughs> it was the next year. Well, it's actually still the same year, 66, yeah. when he did it all. And it was early the next year that we went to Hobart. But he came back and said, look, great, 40 people waiting. We should have checked it out. We should have realised Pastor Jack could tend to make things sound pretty good. When we got there. We sold know, up everything and sold we just up went. Sold, it, that, what, sold the house. Yeah, sold. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Just had a little uh, Volkswagen microbus. Yeah. Filled all, all the possessions we had left and a baby. Ruth was just a baby. And drove down to Hobart with a few things on so the way. So had you visited Hobart before? No. Never, never been to Tasmania. <laughs> no, John. <laughs> Will you talk to Pastor John about us? This is our life. <laughs> <laughs> and we went in. Um, when we got there, there were four people, not 40. It was George and George. There might have been 40 at a meeting once, but they were probably... What had happened was that they had got converted through, I don't know their full testimony now, through the Melbourne Revival Centre, as it was called in those days. And every Easter and Christmas they would attend their camps. Yeah. But they lived in Hobart 
for the rest of the year they went to the Assemblies of God. Right. So when Pastor Jack went down there, yeah, there were 40 people there. They were all from the Assemblies of God. So when I got down, they didn't want to join us at all. They come and listen to a very colourful speaker like Pastor Jack. But So we ended up with four people. And within two weeks of being there, we, um, we had the Hobart bushfire. Right. Which was one of the great disasters of mankind in Australia. Mm. So can you talk to that? Because there's probably a lot of people that wouldn't remember um, Helen might be about. better at that. Mm. Well, Jock, um, as soon as we got there, Jock got a job in the post office, as I on the counter, weren't you? And that was in the centre of town. In, right in the, GPO, in, the fe- in the main post yes. office, Macquarie Street, Hobart. Yes. So I was only, um, how old was I? I was 20, wasn't I? That's right. So uh, Ruth was uh, only 11 months old when we got there and we stayed uh, with these folk. They very, were very kind to put us up. They invited us to come and stay there until we could get accommodation. So during those two weeks we were looking for something suitable to rent and the week prior to the bushfire we actually saw two houses that either would have been suitable and we were not able to get them. On the day of the bushfire, which was the, uh, what was it, the 7th of February? 7th of February. 7th of February. Um, 1967. That's correct. Jot went off to work. Juanita Bayam, who came from Kangaroo Island, and many of the folks will remember mm-hmm. Juanita. Mm-hmm. Smith. Uh, Smith, she became. Uh, she came and so we had music. She played the piano accordion. Oh, it was glorious to have Juanita with us. So she was a couple of years younger than me. And on this particular day, she had had some interviews for jobs. She did not yet have a job. And I can remember in the morning doing the washing because in those days we washed nappies. And I had all the nappies out on the line and I'm going, smell, smell, yes, I can smell a fire. And um, I... uh, (laughs) You're hanging the nappies on the line and you're going, smell, smell, sorry. I couldn't resist that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, I um, went inside and I was I was a bit concerned um, because uh, for those of you who know Hobart, it's very hilly, very bushy, mm. um, very hard to get around in a hurry. And so I was concerned. I went inside and what happened then? Well, I'll tell you what you happened You go then. on then with what happened, yes. I was working on the main counter of the GPO and a lady came into the into the public area and um, she was literally screaming for her husband and uh, and when we finally calmed her down she said don't you realize that the whole of Strickland Avenue is on fire now our road Apsley wasn't it Apsley Street Apsley Street ran off Strickland Avenue Strickland Avenue is the big main road that goes right up around Mount Wellington which is behind there so she had the whole lot was on fire. So um, I don't know whether she ever got a husband or not. All I know is I went and got the phone and rang You him. rang me? Yeah. Yeah, he rang me. Well, the Silver... They had a phone. Very few people had a phone. Most... Well, they were quite wealthy. They had a phone. They were Silver Isons. But they weren't there. They had gone to Melbourne because they had a holiday house at Mount Martha that was threatened by bushfires, so they had gone to look after the Which no, never eventuated there. No. Um, and you'd only been there a short... We'd only been there... period of time. A couple of weeks. Two yeah. weeks. Yeah. Yes. So was Juanita and I are home and Jock rings and he said, is the fire near you? It was a big bay window upstairs. I said, yes, it's coming across the hills. It's coming down on three fronts. 
and he said to me, right, well, you have to go outside and put the hose in the gutter on the roof. So I go outside, I turn on the hose and it goes drip, drip. drip. Everybody's putting their hose in their gutter. Hmm. So then uh, the next conclusion was we actually need to leave. So I always say this, what do you take when you're running for your life? You take your two wide-margin King James Bibles, <laughs> you take your husband's two new glow-weave shirts. And the baby. And the baby. <laughs> <laughs> and we got in the car with an old combi van. When No seatbelts or anything in those days. No, no thought of taking a bottle of water. We'd only been there two weeks. I didn't know where to go anyway, mm. actually, to be safe. Wernice is sitting there. She's holding baby Ruth, who's um, nearly 12 months old, and I couldn't start the car, wouldn't start. And I'm sitting Which is there. so good because There's a probably, lot of people died in their cars. I was going to say, oh, so, praise the Lord, it probably saved yeah. your life. Yeah. Oh, well, what it was was that the Lord was going to save us there. We didn't mm. have to run uh, and we didn't know that. So then I said, pardon me, I said to Wernita, well, we're not going Um We've got to scrounge this house for buckets because we've got water. Uh, out the back was a, a wooden boat that had been dragged up close to the back door and it leaked. And, but with Billy's boat, and he filled it up with water to swell up the timber so that it wouldn't right. leak. And uh, so she scrounged the house, but we couldn't find any buckets. And I said, right, it's the Rena Ware saucepans. There was a set of Rena Ware saucepans, very expensive saucepans, and whenever I had done the wash-up over the, um, the the previous fortnight, the dear lady who owned the house had said, please be careful with my Rena Ware saucepans, don't scratch them, which of course I would never willingly have done, but it was the Rena Ware saucepans or nothing, and we took them downstairs, we filled them up out of the boat and rode them up on the, on the concrete. And when the... Um, Sparks and embers came from from the um, there, were, there was a paint factory burning that was built in the old women's prison just up and and the Cascade Brewery and the Cascade Brewery yeah. all close and we were copying everything so the bush under the eaves of the shed between the house began to smoulder yeah and things would just. Explode. explode into flame. You never saw two girls the heat move was so incredible fast. Hot. It was unbelievable. Yeah. So, what, so, what was going on through your mind? I mean, were you praying at this point? We're, we're, we're watching and praying in tongues. Yeah. And we, um, we put it out. You never saw two girls move so fast. We put that thing <laughs> out. And then, then I'll let Jock come in with his bit of the story next. What we did notice later on over the next two or three hours, all burning all around us, the house would catch fire. Hang on, so where were you at this point? In the post office. Right, so you're still in the post office. Still in the post office while all that happened, yep. or while I was running home. So what was going on with, in your mind at that point? Well, I was thinking, I hate to confess this, I was thinking of our child. That's what goes through your mind. Yeah. As well as Helen and Juanita, but it was the baby. So I went into the postmaster and told him, and he just said, just go, close your drawer and go. I ran outside and it was like the end of the world. In terms of First red, of the, smoke, well, stuff. The, the smoke was horizontal. Right. Wind 100 miles an hour. The wind was unbelievable. Created, it was a windy day in here, but created by the fire. Yeah. You could just see the embers going pretty well horizontal. Wow. 
When I got outside, all the buildings were disgorging people onto the path. Everybody was panicking. Yeah. People were screaming. They had trolley buses, which are like a tram, like but a it's tram. just a bus. Yeah. And they had to dodge something and come off the road, off their overhead part and were blocking the road. Cars were going Oh, so they'd come off their track. Yeah, they're obviously dodging yeah. a car or something. So I, I don't know why I did it. I crossed over to the other side of the left-hand side whereas our road came off on the right-hand side, but about two miles away, about three kilometres away. And um, I started running. I wasn't all that fit. I was young. I was only 24, but I still wasn't all that fit. And I started running and a utility pulled up and the guy in the driver's seat leant across and threw open the passenger door and yelled out, get in. And this woman in front of me got in and then I got in and they both looked at me as husband and wife. (laughs) (laughs) And I was in. Yeah. And I held the door and I wasn't getting out. And I said, where are you going? They said, oh, we're going to Strickland Avenue. I said, I'm going to Strickland Avenue. So they didn't argue. But when we got to the base of Strickland Avenue, it was a fire engine right across the road. Police and firemen everywhere stopping everybody going beyond. Well, I don't know what it was. They weren't going to stop me. And I went, I should have got signed up for the All Blacks that day. I went through. They never caught me. And when I got beyond it, though, and started going, you couldn't see anything couldn't see in front of your hand, hitting is coming straight in your face. So this is the smoke and the yeah, embers. Yeah, I put oh. a handkerchief like you do around my mouth, had to feel the fence to see even where I was, although that did clear a bit later on and I got home okay. And uh, really the most that Helen's just described, the worst thing that happened that day was that bush smouldering. We noticed later on often trees or bushes underneath an eave would catch, go up through the eave, catch through the ceiling yeah. and the building. And we left Ruth inside the house crying pretty well all afternoon. But we noticed some of the houses that... This went, is why you're outside fighting yes. the fire. Oh. outside. Yeah. And now and again you see a house light up through the smoke. Yeah. And it would just go from window to window, bang, bang, bang. We never would have got Ruth out Mm. if the house had caught fire. It was a brick house Mm. and we spent the afternoon outside praying in tongues. I reckon we spoke in tongues for four hours straight. And it burnt around us. We had the flock factory burnt and that was only three doors away. And the big wood yard. The big wood yard. A policeman came down at one point and uh, a lot of people running, fleeing from their homes with a suitcase in their hand. Some of them said we just lost everything. So we were there until about four o'clock in the afternoon? Yeah, four or five. Four or five. It it was, um, they said at the time, it was the greatest peacetime disaster Australia had ever had. About 56, I mean, we've had more horrendous numbers since then. 56 people died all around us, a lot of people in cards, yeah. women with children and all that. So I think that that was the thing. 56 people. Oh, oh yeah, within number. Thousands four of hours. animals, loads mm. of houses. Mm. Burned into the city, like they did with Cambria years later, it burnt into the city. Mm. Trouble with us city slickers, we always think, oh, there's only country people have bushfires. No. No. Yeah. no. So about five or six o'clock, five, I came in, it just suddenly just stopped dead. Not a breath of air. And where the, where the big old walls of the Bluestone Woman's Prison built back 200 years ago, whenever, had the factory, the paint factory, it was just a pall of black smoke just going straight, straight vertical, up. no wind anymore, and total silence. It was like an oil tanker burning. And we just yes. crashed on the bed and just crashed out. No more danger, it was all over. It was all over in four hours. 
the people on the mainland didn't know a thing about it. Oh. They didn't know because all of the, of the communications were down. See, the only yeah. communication in those days was either physically moving there. The only other two was telephone on a telegraph telephone line and tele, telegrams on a telegram line. There was nothing else. So when this happened, all the lines had got burnt down. So for they reckon they could see the smoke from Melbourne. Mm. But for 24 hours, nobody knew exactly what had happened. Wow. It was a funny ad. I'll just finish on this. It's a funny ad came out in the newspaper in Scotland. It says the teeny island of Tasmania has been totally wiped out by bushfire. Tasmania is actually bigger than Scotland. And, uh, and it wasn't the whole island. It was mainly around the, uh, the Huon Valley and, uh, and the city of... About Hobart. seven bushfires linked up, apparently. Yeah. Um, Just a combination. They had a very wet winter, so there's a lot of oh, uh, fuel. Yeah. Yeah. The two houses we tried to rent the week before both burned down. Did they really? Wow. And Just talk about the revival side we of it. We would wow. never have got out. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of things going on there, isn't oh, there, around yeah. provision, right? Not oh, getting those houses. Absolutely. The car not starting yeah. uh, and then the Lord just protecting you through that whole oh, thing. Oh, he did protect mm, us that's amazing. A couple of things to do with the little revival. We did have a bit of revival while we were there. But the first day we were there, I ran into a previous pastor that we'd had in Adelaide, a guy called Peter Mullen. I don't know how much we ever covered on that earlier on. Unfortunately, he got into trouble a bit there and he'd left Adelaide and we had lost all contact with him in in 1962, so here we are five years later. Yeah. He was a very lovable guy, witnessed to by Jack Clay, um, returned vet from the Second World War, as a lot of our pastors were in those days, and uh, he'd sort of gone astray for a couple of weeks and then got himself sorted out. We didn't know any of this. And he decided to get away and he went down to Hobart and he started a new revival. Very good evangelist, very good preacher. I used to say to him when he was in Adelaide, if you ever leave Adelaide, I'm on your shadow, I'm going with you. But when something went wrong, I didn't, of course. So the first day we were in Hobart, I run into the main street to Peter Mullen. And uh, I, was, I was very happy to see him. And, um, and that night we sat up until 2 o'clock in the morning with me trying to talk him into ringing Pastor Lloyd Longfield and coming back into our fellowship. But he wasn't interested at all. He had an assembly of 80 people by that time, and he wanted me to go in as his 2IC, which I would have loved to do. And um, so I sat up till 2 o'clock that night, and he was sort of easy to talk to, but you could see there was no interest in coming back into our fellowship, which we had done. When he had left, we were all out, and then we'd come back in 64. And for me to be his 2IC, I'd have to leave the fellowship again, unless he came back into the fellowship. Later on, uh, we so found... Why, so why didn't you do that? I didn't want to go out of the fellowship again, n- number one. Mm. I'd had th- two and a half years of that from end of 61 to middle of 64 and it was hell on earth. That was when we tried to join the AOG and the CRC and we did everything wrong, but actually we did everything right. We found out what not to do. Yeah. So this is um, from 64 on to 67, three years later, and the only way to become his 2IC was to leave the fellowship because he wasn't part of it, even though he was preaching. In and the, so that two and a half years yep. that you were out looking around other churches, right? Did we really, didn't do it for that reason. No, no, but that, but that really solidified your vision of, around what a church should be. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, it was only by doing that, making a lot of mistakes, yeah. when we only had 30 people, yeah. 
so that later on in the late 60s, when the revival took off, as Pastor John often said, well, that was the best thing we ever did. We found out what not, not to, to do. do. Mm. So we weren't tempted to rub shoulders mm. with compromise or anything like that. Mm. And so being in Tasmania where there's you know, no fellowship really for you, yep. but then seeing Peter's fellowship of 80 people, regardless of how naturally easy it would have been, I yeah. imagine, to go with Peter, you were just so steadfast in your vision for yeah, what that's you should right. do. Mm. Later on, my brother Ben visited us and when he went back, he came down on holidays for about two or three weeks. When he went back to Melbourne, by the way, just commenting on Pastor Lloyd Longfield, for many years, an absolutely fantastic leader, he started the revival, he didn't start it, but he really fanned the flame and for many, many decades he was good. It was only in the latter two or three years that to us who were still in contact with him that he lost it. I don't want to brand him as always being, you know, wrong, if I can use that word. For many, many years he was absolutely fantastic. And this is right back in 1967 when he was fantastic, a great leader. And my brother Ben and his wife Anna visited him in Carnbray in Melbourne where he was living. And Ben went through the story of Peter. He knew Peter Mullen because he came from Geelong. And um, when I was talking to Peter about Lloyd, he kept almost a little bit condescending. Oh, yeah, yeah. I kept calling him Little, Little Lloyd or can't remember how he was. Peter wasn't all that tall. And Lloyd was fairly average height, I suppose. So there's a little bit of condescension there, I think. But when we when Ben talked to Lloyd about Peter, after a while uh, Ben was getting frustrated that he couldn't get Peter to come with us. And by the way, he had no rules and regulations in those days. There was no sort of... Oh, he's done this, therefore he can't come out. We hadn't got into that at that point. And uh, so if he wanted to come back, he could have come back. And Lloyd, always pretty sharp, he suddenly said to Ben, how much does he value our fellowship? Ben said the moment he said that, he knew it was all over. Ben said he doesn't value our fellowship at all. We're only there for about four months. Came back, arrived so back in Adelaide on the 1st so, of June. So you're only in Tasmania the whole for four months? Yeah. That's all. Right. Can I just add something here before Chuck goes on to that? This was the miracle. One week after the fire, when there were 7,000 people homeless in 7, Hobart. 7,000 people. people homeless in Hobart. And surrounding districts. And surrounding districts, yes. And the fact that the two houses we had tried to rent were burned down. Yeah. One week later, we got a flat when it was impossible the Lord got us somewhere to live. They said that the locals were before any visitors. Yes, and it was because Jock worked in the post office. The guy who owned this uh, place, it was built by the convicts. It had some prints in the bricks. I love the history in battery of it. point for those who know Hobart. Yeah. yeah. So you're only in Hobart for four months. What made you move back? Well, a letter from Pastor John because it was real struggle time. This little flat we had was freezing cold. A little baby, there was sort of the only place you could be in a little cot was near the front door, which had a gap under it like this. And oh, that's about, that's about an inch for those that are listening on the road. <laughs> that's true, sorry. So I would uh, stuff up the gap under the door and then pin blankets all the way around her cot to keep right. her out of the door. We weren't used to cold, like, because Hobart and Christchurch are about in the same latitude. Yeah. But having said that, I would just add that, that one week after the fire, it snowed. Right. <laughs> in and Mount Wellington was all black <laughs> and a white cap white, on white the cap, top. yeah. So we... We have never been, or Helen's been better at personal evangelism than I have, so I've never had a great record of 
converting people, maybe a couple over the years. And um, so I just started running ads in the paper. I had one little particular little ad that was called Jesus Said, which is a big open door. You can grab any of the things that Jesus said and make some. So that's a little ad. And we had a few people come along. We baptised, I think we worked out whether it was ever that many, I don't know, a dozen people or something, didn't hold them all. Then we got this lovely letter from Pastor John Corman said, look, things have taken off here in Adelaide, why don't you come home, we can do more together than apart, and we were home within a week. (laughs) (laughs) And you you didn't have anything to sell up at that point? No, no. Was it just pack the combi and off you go? I remember coming here, we stayed with Helen's mum the night before and on the 1st of June, so we got there in end of January, 1st of June, we were back in Elizabeth and it was a beautiful day. It was cold, it was, but compared with Hobart, it was glorious. We were so happy to be back. Yeah. And then the revival in Adelaide, we left when the assembly only had about 40 people in it and in that four months it had grown to 60 right. percentage-wise yeah. and was really booming. Yeah. One particular person who a lot of people maybe listening to this would know from way back, a guy called Paul Kay came to the Lord in that year, 1967, while we were in Hobart, and he had a huge impact on the Adelaide work, he and others that came in. The year later in 1968 is when Rex Hazy and Thelma Hazy and Roy and Leah Watcho, two Families that had a big impact on our fellowship came to the Lord. And really then it just started a, just started a motor after that. So what are we talking, late 60s now? Late 60s yeah, okay. when it took off. Yeah. All the early parts of the 60s was trial and error, it really was. Yeah. When we came back into the fellowship in 64, part of the reason, I don't know if Pastor John told the story, we have, but I'll repeat it, we had got slack on smoking and drinking, not that we did, but... Our converts weren't always... This is back in the early 60s. This is 1963, 64. Yeah. And so we had quite a few people in the assembly that were still smoking and drinking. We never did, but we we maybe would talk against it but never really enforced it. And the thing that really tipped the scale with Pastor John, after trying to join the Assemblies of God, we just didn't fit. Square peg in a round hole, it really was. CRC, the really crazy on demonology at the time, we didn't want that. So we're trying to go it alone, just 30 people, and um, Pastor John, Janet, my brother Ben and his wife Anna, Jeff and Lorraine Capon, and later on Helen came over. So, uh, but this is before we got married. So what tipped the scale in the middle of 1964 was a man in the assembly was a smoker, and he brought a new guy along who also was a smoker. He got in the baptism tank and the guy, like, fair enough, came out to see him get baptised. And as he sat up in the baptism tank, he handed him a cigarette in the baptism tank. And Pastor John said to himself, we need help. This is getting out of control. And within a week he went and saw Noah Hollands in those days and then Lloyd Longfield and we were back in the fellowship. And so... I mean, I assume you must have seen people instantly healed of smoking and drinking. Mm. Mm. Yeah, loads right. of them, loads of them. So, I mean, I find that the part that's always difficult, because you know, there's plenty of churches today don't think that's a problem. No, they don't. Right? And so I, I, I question whether or not they actually see people healed or don't. Mm. Yes. And if they do, how do they reconcile that God heals them completely? Amen. Well, my father was healed of being an alcoholic when he came to the Lord, yeah. covered yeah. drinker. So what happened then is Noah Hollands came over within a month or so, mid-1964, and he gave a lecture, that's a, almost what you'd call it, he preached 
very strongly against smoking and drinking. And then we got married. And then unfortunately Helen's father got sick. He was dying of lung cancer. Pastor John and Sister Janet had to move to to Bendigo. I think they might have gone through that story with you. To rescue Mrs. Max, sell the little general store in, in um, Morong near Bendigo, bring her back. While he was away, towards the end of 1964, 50% of the assembly left because they were offended over the smoking and drinking issue. They didn't want to give it up. And one day we had 30 people. I remember ringing Pastor John in Bendigo on Morong saying, do you remember that assembly you used to have? <laughs> and he said straight away, oh, dear, what's happened? And I said, well, we've just lost half the assembly. They contacted the local assemblies of God and they said, we don't mind if you smoke and drink, come and join us. But that night, we had a meeting within a day or so of that night when we knew that it was all happened at Judy and David Patterson's place. And it was the best meeting we'd had for months, wasn't it? It was an awesome meeting. Because we were united. The ones who stayed were united. Yes. I just remember the happy, happy atmosphere of everyone because we, we knew where we were. We had, had the standard back. The Lord's standard was wonderful. What happened yeah. is when we did come back into fellowship in, in Melbourne, the first thing Pastor Lloyd said to Pastor John was, oh, I'm so glad that we've now got to work in Adelaide. He said, because two things, we've got Trudy Boehm on Kangaroo Island, who's been in the Lord about a year. So hang on, so, so Trudy was on KO, so this is before the Hobart. This is before Hobart, Hobart. Three years yeah. before. Yeah. We jumped backwards and forwards a little. That's right. So um, Trudy, he said, Trudy Boehm is on my, on my back every week saying, send somebody over. Lloyd had already been over himself, yeah. and there's only the, the Boehm family at that point and a very good evangelist, as turned out, all the soldier settlers. And he said, the other thing is we've got a lady and her husband come to the Lord in Adelaide, Grace Banbury, who's Judy Patterson's mother, and father, Grace and Ron, 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 Ron. Banbury. Yeah. And uh, can you call in and see them? They live at Glenelg. So John, Pastor John came back to Adelaide with two little revivals. So he went down to see... Um, Grace Banbury in, in Glenelg knocked on the door and it was it was Judy Patterson who answered the door and the moment she knew who John was, she said, I want to get baptised. We hadn't had a baptism for months. Maybe the last guy was the guy that had the cigarette and the baptism thing, I don't know. <laughs> we hadn't had, had, there was no revival. And, excuse me, so then Judy, David took a while. Judy came in straight away. Mm. Grace and Ron started coming to our assembly and so it, and then on Kangaroo Island, he flew to Kangaroo Island. And I think while he was there, he baptised Margaret. Mm, mm. And then the Sandermans later on. I think it was in that order. I'm not quite sure. But Margaret, her as she was then, had a marriage had broken up. We had two children, Kim and Dee, Dareth, had the two children. She was a solo mum, as you might say, at this one. Very unhappy, had been unhappy for a couple of years and came out and stayed at the, the uh, Bayham Farm when Pastor John was there, prayed with Pastor John, received the Holy Spirit and at two o'clock in the morning started laughing loudly and laughed until dawn, kept everybody else awake. She hadn't laughed for two years. John went, Pastor John went back again another time and Trudy had said to to Claude, her husband, then because they're on the farm, running a farm, we're going to witness to whoever comes on the farm. And the next person to come on the farm was Wallace Sandman, oh, yeah. <laughs> but not the Wallace Sandman you know, grandfather, 
Right. Paul Sandman Sr. And he had got, he was a farmer also, but he wasn't a very good farmer. And his son Michael Sandman had taken over that farm. I won't go into all of that. And he got a job with one of the hardware stores and they were promoting some sort of staple for fencing and he knocked on the door. He got witness to high up in the Church of England. He and not Fiona, that's Wallace Jr. Which I think. Um, uh, what? Gosh, amazing how you forget. But if they came to the Lord. There was... You don't forget much. <laughs> <laughs> We're going back a lot of years now. <laughs> Ida. 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 Very good. Ida. Wallace and Ida Sandeman. Yeah. He was in his late 60s. Oh, yes. In the, in the First World War and the Second World War. And Wallace was about 42, Wallace Jr. Yes. And the, 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 we then came over, Helen and I came over straight after Easter 1965, just after we got married. And we just, I never witnessed anybody, oh, maybe I did, I didn't bring anybody to the Lord, we'll put it that way. And neither did Helen, we were stuck on another farm. I was a farm labourer. And, uh, but in two months, we baptised 20 people. On Kangaroo Island. Just filled the Bayham, all in Bayham's house. Grew to 30. In actual fact, I think at one point we were bigger than the Adelaide Assembly. I think we had 33 and Adelaide had 32. I always remind Pastor John of that now and again. That only lasted about a month. but uh, They were the most wonderful house meetings oh. because the Bames were all so musical, you mm. see. And so after the meeting, when we really enjoyed the singing, we'd all gather around the piano then the and just one. sing the old-fashioned way. Oh, all, gosh, it all was the bones could harm, including Claude. Oh, yes, they could all sing. Yeah. Yeah, it was very, a very good revival. We were there 10 months. Yep. Handed over to John Smith, who married Juanita. I, I remember John Smith. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He was uh, he was in Melbourne when we moved to the movie. Yeah. 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 And we know yes. his kids. And, and so from then you went back to Adelaide and yeah. then you went down to Hobart after that. No, I tried to go to Darwin the next year. Right. Michael Sandman, one of the converts on Kangaroo Island, wanted to go and do something for the Lord. And it was decided why we got a couple that just come to the Lord up in Darwin, Ivan and, and Carmen Tester, and uh, pretty well up there on their own. And well, why don't you go up there, right up the top of Australia? It's amazing how small the work was in those days. Nothing in Western Australia, maybe one assembly in Sydney, one assembly in Brisbane, that was it. Mel- Victoria was mainly a Victorian fellowship. Adelaide Kangaroo. How many would there have been in Victoria at that point in time? What year are we talking? 67, 66, there would have been um, two to 300 in Geelong and 400 in Melbourne. Yeah. So less than 1,000 people all oh, around yeah, Australia. Yeah. A, a few other pockets around yeah. regional the only, know, areas. The only other assembly outside of Australia, only had one assembly outside of Australia, and that started in 1962 in Auckland with Fred Needham. Right. Hmm. They're very small. And now we're talking hundreds, we're talking 100,000 yes. people just in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, right? Wow. that's right. Amazing. So just going back to that initial revival in Kangaroo Island, which we've got people still throughout the work come from that revival. What had happened is that I had a couple of times in my life where I feel the Lord really led me to do something. You're always sort of a bit cautious on what you say about that, but only ever happened twice in my life. One when I left Port Lincoln in 1962, had an experience, as well I call it, near a voice, just really felt that I needed to go to Elizabeth, which is what started the work there in Elizabeth. And then the other only time in my life that I've had really a direct sort of something was in the communion service at the Ballarat camp in 1965, six months after we were um, married. 
and I had an impression of be the way I'd have it very heavily put upon me to go to Kangaroo. I'd never thought of going to Kangaroo Island. And I went, after the meeting I went and saw Pastor John said, look, I think, I think I'd like to go to Kangaroo Island and try and do, I think, the Lord leading me, whatever the word is. And he wasn't very convinced. So that's all right. I wouldn't mostly been either. So maybe just your imagination, I don't know. But he said, oh, well, you better come and talk to Pastor Lloyd about it. So it shows you this, it really does indicate how small the fellowship was in 1967, mm. 1965, I'll get this right. And in 1965, we had a, must have been the first Easter camp at Ballarat, mm-hmm. I reckon, uh, in, in the in the air base at Ballarat, in the old Second World War air base in the big hangar. And he said, you better come and tell Pastor Lloyd. So he said, I wasn't a pastor. I was sort of his assistant, but I wasn't a pastor. And um, so he said, we're going to have it at the pastor's meeting. Now, the pastor's meeting was held in one of Pastor Lloyd's motor cars. (laughs) So he always bought big American cars and had two big bench seats and you could fit four pastors on each seat. That was the whole oversight. And uh, so... They had seven pastors in the car and me. And the first thing, Pastor Lloyd, who was sitting behind the steering wheel, I was sitting right behind him. First thing that Lloyd, Pastor Lloyd said was, before we discuss anything, brethren, he said, I'm, we've got to do something about Kangaroo Island. Trudy Bones on my back almost every day. And Pastor John said, well, I think we've got that sorted. And then Pastor Lloyd gave us 300 pounds. It was a lot of money in those days for us to move from Adelaide to Kangaroo Island. So by the time we got there, we had first of all we went over one weekend see if I could get a job, uh, and also to meet some of the people. And Wallace Junior came to his first meeting while we were there. Mum and Dad had come to the Lord. Margaret Heard had come to the Lord, and nearly the whole Bayam family had come by that time. And um, and maybe Kim and Dareth, I'm not sure. Maybe. Maybe. So there was a little bit of revival already there. Now Wallace. Wallace and Fiona dressed up, Wallace Jr. dressed up like they're going to the Anglican church, which they had been doing, all beautifully dressed up, all the kids and beautiful, in a, in a farmhouse mm-hmm. for a meeting. Wallace said afterwards, and he looked at me, he said, he's so young, I was only 22, he's so young. And after the meeting he said, but it looks like he knows what he's talking about. So that maybe more, that was what it was. Helen was only 18, only a couple of kids really. So Wallace got baptised, they all got baptised fairly reasonably quickly and Wallace didn't receive the Holy Spirit, we're talking about Wallace Jr. now, didn't receive the Holy Spirit straight away, very disappointed. And he prayed a bit when he got home and the next day and then one of the, within one or two days he was out, very romantic sort of a guy. By the way, he's still alive at the time we're talking, way up in his 90s now, Second World War vet again. And he, um, he was out in, in his farm, lovely farm, down near Flinders Chase, the end of Kangaroo Island, and he was out with the sheep and he was looking up at the sky and he'd gone out to collect the sheep to kill it, to have for meat. And he had a little motorbike with a little sort of funny little trailer thing on the back and going to bring it back on. And he was looking at the clouds and looking at the hills and just glorying in the creation and he just burst out swinging in tongue. He said he wasn't even praying. Just, just bang, there it was. So he forgot about the motorbike. <laughs> he just decided to run home to tell Fiona. And he remembers going through the – at one point he went through a fence, crawled down to get underneath the wire, and he remembers he was lying on his back speaking in tongue with the dog licking his face. 
When he burst into the kitchen, he said, Fiona, and that's as far as he got, burst out speaking in tongues, rang up his mother, Ida, mum, bang, spoke in tongues again. So a very miraculous time, very happy time it was. Yeah, right. Um, what about the Jolly family? Oh, the Jolly family. Jolly family yeah, was Jeff great. and Nell, Helen called her Nell, Jolly. Another neighbour farm, but they were real, quite a rough sort of a farm farm. There are some it. folk around who will remember them from later years in Woodcroft. Yeah, they came back into Woodcroft. Yes. Um, but he was um, rough is the only word I can think of. If you know anything about Marin Park Kettle, the history of them with all the animals in the house, that was their home. One of their children, Billy, brought the horse into the kitchen once to show me his horse. And uh, <laughs> so chooks everywhere and everything. But, oh, but they named a, a, a dog after you, yeah, they didn't did. they, really Jock? Yes. <laughs> so I want to tell Nell's testimony in particular at that time. Um, Juanita was working at stacking shelves, or maybe even serving, I'm not sure on that, at the local little general store in Pandana. This is Juanita Smith, who I later mentioned to do with the bushfire in Hobart. Yeah, yeah. married yes. John Smith. So Anita was working in the shop and all the farm, not all, some of the farm people would ring in and place an order and they'd get put the food on the school bus. The school bus would drop all the kids off, drop the food off. And so Nell Jolly rang in to order her food, just come to the Lord, literally, and uh, the lady was that ran the shop was standing there mesmerised and when, when the conversations, I used to stand there with the phone in hand like this and she just said, that was Nell Jolly. And she never swore once. And right at the end of it she said, God bless. <laughs> <laughs> so she used to so swear she, like so a she, trooper. So this lady, this shopkeeper had seen the transformation. Heard, heard it on the Incredible phone. Incredible yeah. transformation. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yes. What yes. other miracles did you see on Kangaroo Island? I'm trying to think of some of the testimonies. Mm-hmm. Trudy Boehm, of course, the reason she'd come to the Lord, yep. she had a chronic back problem with a, what do you call it, a corset-type thing, mm-hmm. back brace thing wrapped around her. Right. And her sister had come to the Lord in Canberra. Her name was Betty Hocking. Mm-hmm. And Betty rang her one day and said she was a Sunday school teacher with the Methodist Church in Kangaroo Island. Claude was nothing really, wasn't he? No. Betty rang her sister. Trudy Boehm, and said, at such and such a time, I'm going to go out to the prayer line and I'm going to pray for your back and you've got to get down on your knees. And she got healed. Wow. And she prayed at the same time in a farmhouse from Canberra to Kangaroo Island and she got healed. They then went a couple of months later, it's all before we went there, they went to the summer camp. Must have been 63? Yeah, yeah. I think in 63... Ma- uh, the Mornington Peninsula one at yeah. Mount, Mount Martha. Either 63 or 64. Yes. So they were quite well established in the law by the time we went to the island and they got baptised in the spirit, spirit of fear. Now, when Nita was there, she was only a, a teenage girl. Mm. Mm. The others, there's, there's Kevin, who's still around the traps, mm. Kevin, and there's, of course, Eunice. Yes. Eunice, Eunice um, uh, married to Pastor, Pastor Chaz. Chaz now, yeah. So that's the family we're talking about. But yep. when Eta was late teens, or by that time even mid-teens, I'd say, and maybe 15 or something, and she was very involved in the Methodist church. And mum and dad decided to get baptised by Pastor Lloyd at the camp. And I remember they were worried about the farm. And Trudy just said, look, if God's with us, God look after the farm, mm. and he did. They had no problem when they got back. Worried about sheep being blown, all the problems you can have with sheep. So 
Go on. I was just thinking about Juanita's testimony that she stood up the beach and she watched her mum and dad get baptised and in her mind she was thinking, I've been going to the Methodist church, I'm all right, I'm not going to do she this. She actually told mum and dad that she wasn't going to get baptised. She wasn't going to do it. And then she suddenly tossed the tail down and she belted down the beach and she got into the water and just she got baptised. Just after they got baptised. Yeah. She wasn't going to miss it. She was a lovely sister, wonderful oh, sister, Anita. Yeah, what a treat. It was such a pleasure to have her with us in Hobart for that time. Just yeah. trying to think of any other testimony. I know when Pastor Lloyd took me aside just before I went to KI and he talked about Claude and he said, now Claude has been through hell on earth up in, up in Papua New Guinea. And he's a very trauma. They didn't even have the right words in those days. No, just use PTSD, words like PTSD as we know it today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. traumatic stress disorder. Had no counselling. Yeah. No. So he was carrying a lot of weight. And um, but he's a lot older than me. I was only twenty-two, and Claude was late forties. No, he was by late forties. Quite old when he joined the army, actually. And um, and Lloyd. Well, I'm really glad Lloyd talked to me about it. He said, "Look, you're only a kid, really." He didn't say that, but that's what he implied. And he said, don't talk down. I don't think I would have anyhow, but don't talk down to Claude. Like, oh, you're the pastor and he's just one of the members of the assembly. So I always treated him with a lot of respect. And he was the sort of guy you wanted to respect anyhow. Mm. But I think he I think he died young, mm. heart problems because of all what he went through mm. up there. So, uh, And he, um, he used to take a lot of the people aside to pray with them to receive the Holy Spirit. I think most of the people received with Claude playing with them, which I didn't mind. I guess I got filled with the Holy Spirit. So you were so you appointed as the pastor when you went to Kangaroo yes. Island? Yeah. When I went to Port Lincoln in 90, 1961 to 62, I was called an elder. At 19, I was called an elder. And then when I came back to Adelaide, I was nothing or just a member. And I wasn't even connected to the oversight, although I started running meetings up at Elizabeth. I won't go into all of that. Pastor John was Peter Mullins too, I see, at that point. And it wasn't long after Peter on the left, which I mentioned earlier on, that I did sort of become Pastor John's two I see. I wasn't a pastor, though. I went to Kangaroo Island. While I was there, I was called a pastor. I think some of the old magazines have got my name on the back in 1964 as a pastor in Kangaroo Island. Came back to Adelaide, nothing again. I went to Hobart, I was called a pastor. Didn't even have an assembly in those days. I'm pretty sure I was called a pastor in Hobart. For four months, came back to Adelaide, nothing. And then I became a pastor when I never resigned again from being a pastor in 1970. So that's three years after we were in Hobart. The Adelaide Assembly was starting to really take off and the only pastor we had in Adelaide was Pastor John. And he, as you know, you know him very well. He's very cautious, doesn't rush into anything. So he Much, much like you, right? <laughs> 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 no, I'm the opposite. I'm a bull of the gate. Bull of the gate. You know, you know, when we were going out together, my mum said um, when we were going to get married, my mum said to me, you two will be all right, you're so alike. <laughs> Which we are. <laughs> Pastor John said to, and Janet said to Helen a few years ago when we stayed with them, they used to feel sorry for Janet that I let her marry Sorry, dance. they used to feel sorry for me. Yes, yeah, sorry, whatever I said is what I meant. <laughs> Then they realised that she was tarred with the same brush. <laughs> Janet actually said, she's as mad as he is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so in 1970 I visited, or we as a family visited the Geelong Assembly and Noel Holland's left in 72. But at this stage the Geelong Assembly's 
got back on his feet from trouble in 61. Jack Clay and Noel Hollands were running the assembly at that time. There was a few little cracks showing which developed, unfortunately, later on. But yeah, we stayed with Noel and Eunice, didn't we? A lovely sister she yeah, was. Yeah, Eunice was a lovely, lovely sister. And um, stayed with Pastor Noel, seven, six foot seven tall, said to me one day, are you a pastor? And I said, no, I don't think so. And he said, well, I think you should be a pastor. And I said, oh, do you? And, yeah, I think you do. He said, oh, I think you should be a pastor. I, I didn't really think any more about it. When I got back to Adelaide, Pastor John rang me and said, I've had a call from Pastor Noah Hollands. And I said, oh, have you? And he said, he thinks you should be a pastor. I said, oh, does he? And then he said, oh, all right then. <laughs> a very exciting start to being a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he didn't regret it. Well, it's the yeah, it's the role, isn't it? It's not the person. Right? Yeah, it's, exactly. the, it's the role that you're undertaking. That's right. right. So yeah, exactly. yeah, when you when you're on Kangaroo Island, you're facilitating the role of a pastor, right? When yeah, you're on that's exactly yeah. right. That's Hobart, right. and you know when you're doing the work in Elizabeth, right? That's the role that you're undertaking. So yes, yeah. hmm. yes, it's been an exciting life. Could I just finish by talking a bit about the change from Elizabeth to the Vogue? Sure. So I have mentioned near. 1970, when I became a pastor, and we had an assembly then of uh, about uh, 80 people. I remember that number just after the Hazies came to the Lord, and, and they had a big impact. Rex and Thelma and Roy and Leah came to the Lord, mm. and we ended up with this little, the original little hall only seated 60, 70. We built half a hall, and we were filling up that second hall, but it was only half a hall. And then we got to 170, and um, it was just happening very, if I can use the word, easily. It was just constant revival. And then that hall would only hold 170, so we doubled the hall to 320, would seat 320. And then in 1976, 75, 75, Pastor John suddenly said, We've got to go back into Adelaide because we had been in Adelaide with Peter Mullen and all that, but that had folded up. We started again in Elizabeth. And he said, and a lot of our people by this time were in Adelaide and right down south, down, down. Morford Vale. Yeah, so for those that don't know Adelaide, Elizabeth's up north, um, which is about probably 30 k's or so, 20, 30 k's from, from the Adelaide CBD. It is. Yep. Mm. And then maybe 20 k's south of that right down to Seaford and all that, people coming to the Lord. So Pastor John just suddenly said, hall's nearly full, revival's going great, we really should go back into Adelaide. So instead of being in a satellite town, let's get back into the big smoke. Instead of 60,000 people, what about 1 million people? So we started looking around Adelaide and uh, look maybe building. I mean, we looked at some land out at uh, Campbelltown, where it was farmland, uh, maybe buy and build a hall and all that, and then one day... We got onto the Vogue Theatre, and uh, it was sort of beyond our wildest dreams that we could. Which is um, an old, which is an old picture theatre, old picture, an theater. old Art Deco picture theatre, very nice one, mm. yeah. And anyhow, yeah, so we moved into the Vogue Theatre in 1976, 1976, with around. We lost a couple of people with the move, which was sad. Just didn't want to come to Adelaide. And, well, there's only a couple of families just said, oh, we're not going to go down. We'll go to the local assemblies of God's idea, say. But it really held most of the people and the revival never stopped. Mm. And when we first moved into the Vogue, we just had what we called the cuddle seats, 
two leather sort of two-seater downstairs. Was, upstairs was okay, and a big ramp because of a picture theatre. Mm. I pulled out the ramp later on, and as you see it today, and the revival just went, the only word is ballistic. We were baptising sometimes up to 10 to 15 people a week. And the crazy thing is, you know, oh, it'll always be like this. You tend to think that in life, but life can change and society changes. Well, that's what it is. I mean, if you look at that time, you know, that was a very – people were very open-minded, very yeah. experimental, yeah. not very closed-minded at that Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Right. And so, you know, drugs that were happening at the time, you know, really made people yes. think true. differently. It's yeah, true. Mm. <laughs> so an interesting – definitely an interesting time back then, wasn't it? It was. So let's do this again. All right. What do you think? Well, we would love to do it. Love to if do it. We entice you with lunch, a lunch yeah. and a conversation, so I can get a conversation out of you. <laughs> I reckon you'd probably do the conversation without the lunch. No, we no, would. I do it. we don't. We would. I, I but think it's, it's okay. A, I think it's a very a huge amount of work for your beloved. Can you eliminate that last part? Are <laughs> oh, you want me to edit out the fact that we you do it without the lunch? <laughs> All right, well, there's only one more episode to go. I trust you're enjoying these as much as I enjoyed recording them with Pastor Jock and Helen. Stay tuned for our final episode. You'll find it on your favourite podcast app, Apple, Google, Spotify. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. Until our next episode, God bless. God bless.